I'm Michelle Fowler, and this is Orbital Path, a show about the cosmos and our place in it. In this episode, I have a very special guest. It's Professor Brian Green. Yes, it is. Hi. Brian Green has actually been kind of an idol of mine. I was a little nervous about this interview. He's director of Columbia University's Center for Theoretical Physics, and he's been on the Colbert Report no fewer than seven times. A couple years ago, uh, Brian Green came to Goddard Space Flight Center when I was working there, and he gave a lecture that was intended for people who have a science background, people who know some physics. And I left that room on a high. I could barely feel the floor underneath my feet. He had shown me some of the most beautiful mathematics, things that were changing, things that he thought were coming up right beyond the horizon, advances that he was just seeing the first inkling of. One of the things that he always has challenged us to do is leave behind our our basic human perception of what reality is. We're familiar with the three dimensions of space we live in. We're familiar with time. Time flows from the past to the future. And yet he's sort of the spokesperson for saying, let that all go. The most important thing to realize is that this possibility of more dimensions than the ones that we're directly aware of doesn't come out of some late-night, wild imagination of some scientist who has nothing else better to do. <laughs> it comes right out of the equations that we have developed in an effort to realize a dream that was first articulated by Albert Einstein, which is the dream of finding what he called a unified theory that might be able to unite all our understanding of the physical universe within a small, possibly even a, a single equation. And our best attempt to do that is an approach called string theory. And in the math of string theory, we find a requirement that the universe not have only three dimensions, left, right, back, forth, up, down, the ones that we are all familiar with, but the math itself kind of grabs us by the lapels and slaps us around and says, look at what I am telling you. The universe has to have more than three spatial dimensions of common experience. In fact, the math appears to be telling us 11 space-time dimensions. And that's weird. We take it seriously because math has proven itself a sure-footed guide to the dark corners of reality. So, you know, when you talk about trying to understand these things, you know, my, my, my producer is writing me notes here. and he, He's asking, you know, what would it be like to travel into the, the seventh dimension? And, and this is the type of thing that, you know, people always look at me and I always say, I'm, you know, I'm a three-dimensional creature. If I could point to the next dimension, I would. <laughs> but, yeah. but I can't. There's no way to really describe these. Do you have a way of describing to people how to even start to think of these different dimensions? Well, first off, I, I, I try to convince people that these other dimensions are less exotic than you might might think at first sight. I mean, the number of people who have suggested to me, are the other dimensions uh, consciousness, or are they love, or peace, or harmony? And no, no. They are, <laughs> they're space, just yeah. like the space around us is space. They just have a different shape and a different size. So the math is pretty clear that there's nothing more exotic than that about these other dimensions. But yes, to get a feel for what living in a world with extra dimensions would be like. It's hard, but many of us go the other direction. We, we, we use an analogy that goes down to lower dimensions where the human mind can easily capture what's going on 
and then build up, say, from two dimensions to three dimensions, something that we can all have in mind. So, you know, the famous book Flatland, of course, did this artfully, but, you know, in just a couple of sentences, if we were two-dimensional beings that lived on a piece of paper, imagine that we're little line drawings on a piece of paper, we would be just moving around on the flat sheet. But then if one of us could somehow lift ourselves up above the page and look down on the page, we would actually be able to see inside the interior of people's bodies, right? Because the stuff between the lines outlining the edges of your body on a piece of paper, the stuff inside is visible from the third dimension. Similarly, if we went from three dimensions to four dimensions, a four-dimensional being could look right inside our bodies. Our skin would not provide a barrier for them in terms of their direct access. So that's how weird it can be when you go from one dimension to the next. So to go from our three-dimensional space to 11 space-time dimensions would be a fairly radical change in the way reality is experienced. And some of the examples that you often use is when you think about extra dimensions of space, you know, you know think about a telegraph wire, you know, or, or some sort of wires, you know, electric wire sure. stretched out. And from a distance, it looks like it just has a length. You really can't see that there's anything to it except it's a straight line. But then you get closer to it and you realize that there's actually ants, <laughs> little ants yes. that, are, that are crawling around in another direction around this wire in kind of a spiral shape. So the, the other dimensions in this analogy, are basically very small. They're so small, we really don't realize that they're there. Yes, and that is perhaps the oldest and most developed way in which a theory can predict more dimensions than the ones that we see and not necessarily conflict with observational data. I mean, immediately when you hear the possibility of more dimensions of space, you should react, come on, what are you talking about? Everybody knows that there is left, right, back, forth, and up, down. Those are the only dimensions that we have ever seen. So if a theory says otherwise, the theory must be wrong. But even way before string theory, way back in the early part of the 20th century, there were scientists who realized that if dimensions are tiny and curled up, much as you describe, it's hard to see, perhaps impossible to see with the naked eye and maybe even with today's most powerful equipment. But it's interesting to note that in recent years, physicists have developed approaches where the extra dimensions may not have to be quite so small. Maybe the extra dimensions are big and invisible because light, the thing that we use to access the world, maybe light can travel freely only in the dimensions that we know about, and light gets thwarted in its attempt to travel in these other dimensions, and that's why we don't see them. Light can't travel through them, revealing their existence. In these 11 dimensions, we're basically talking about 10 dimensions of space and one of time. There aren't like different dimensions of time as well, are there? In the most conventional formulation, you're right, we do focus upon extra dimensions of space, not of time. But there are some developments that have inspired physicists to consider two dimensions of time. And it's a curious state of affairs when you even try to envision what a world would be like if it had more than one dimension of time. Would one of those dimensions of time align with our psychological experience of time and that second dimension be radically different? Would there be some way in which these two notions of time would combine to yield a richer version of time than anything any human has ever really experienced? It's hard to tell. 
you know, we live on the timeline of reality, right? We, in our mind's eye, can lift ourselves above that timeline, and unlike most other species, we can remember the past, and we can envision and plan for the future. So that's a great evolutionary development that has allowed our minds to lift beyond the regimented unfolding second by second of the cosmic clock. There have been wonderful science fiction tropes that have made use of this, encountering characters who have a completely different sense of time. Imagine that there are beings that can not only do that in their conscious mind, but they can just lift all above the space-time dimension and just see the whole expanse of reality. What a distinct way of taking it in from that grand vantage point would be. So it's nothing that we can do, but we can certainly imagine beings that perhaps have powers that are well beyond ours. This was always something that as a kid, you know, it, you know, even from an early age, it didn't make a lot of sense to me that when people were saying that, you know, time is something that might exist as a landscape, you know, as a dimension yeah. that exists. But when all of that time exists all at once, then yeah. there's no such thing as one event causing another. So there isn't really oh, an I wouldn't go that far. I wouldn't, I wouldn't go that far. Even if all the events are out there, there's still a notion of causality where a certain occurrence, a certain event at one moment of time, can certainly be demarcated as the cause of a future event. What, what however, does happen is, instead of our intuition that the past is gone, and the future is yet to be, and the only thing that's real is what's happening right now, at this moment of time, we learn that that is a parochial way of looking at things. And it may be that the past, present, and the future are all on equal footing. Now, there's a, a wonderful quote that Einstein is credited with in writing of a letter to the widow of a friend of his who died. And to console her, he noted that to we convinced physicists, the distinction between past, present, and future is only an illusion, however persistent. And that is a view that I think he deeply believed in, because one of the outputs of relativity is this notion of the past, present, and future really, as according to math, being on an equal status. It's not like one is gone and the other is yet to be. They're all kind of there. And that's a very different way of looking at things. And it took until, you know, the year 1905 for somebody to realize that. This idea that, you know, all points in space and, and time exist to some degree all at once. I, you know, I remember when I was courting my husband, I said, when the universe began, I was holding your hand. And when the universe ends, I'll be holding your hand. <laughs> Had that go over. <laughs> well, he, well, he married me. <laughs> Perfect. But that's right. So the notion that events end or that moments in time somehow disappear is almost logically incoherent. Because if a moment exists, and if a moment is the smallest unit of time, then there's no notion of that moment changing. How can a moment change? A moment is a single unit, a single point in the temporal landscape. So yes, in that sense, everything that happens exists for eternity, properly interpreted.
this is one of the things that kind of gives me shivers at night. I mean, when you talk about uh, whether light can actually travel to these different dimensions, and it appears to be bound to our, our four-dimensional space. And the same is true with other familiar forces like electricity and magnetism. But there's something different about gravity, isn't there? Yes, that's exactly right. When we look at this possibility that we've missed these extra dimensions because they don't support the transmission of electromagnetic waves, a fancy way of talking about light, we find that these extra dimensions do transmit not electromagnetic waves, but gravitational waves, the gravitational force. And it's not really hard to understand why. You know, in the last few years, I think the world has become quite familiar with the idea that a gravitational wave is a ripple in the fabric of space itself. So if that's how gravity travels from point to point by waves in space, well, waves in space don't really care whether that space is bound up in the three dimensions that we know about or it's within the extra dimensions that a theory like string theory requires. So gravity is very, very good at traveling through space. That's what it does for a living. And that's why non-gravitational forces are much easier to confine to say the three dimensions we know about, but gravity will always apparently provide us a tool for examining extra dimensions if they're there. And this this different thing about gravity, I mean, this kind of goes back to the history that you were talking about. And you were talking about Einstein searching for this idea of, of, of one theory, one equation that can describe, you know, basically all of physics. And we, we, had a, a, we had pretty good luck. I mean, so electricity and magnetism became the same thing. We, we managed to roll in the nuclear forces as well. But there was always something about gravity that was kind of beyond our grasp. And was it, in fact, gravity that, that led the math into this 11 dimensions? Oh, completely, completely true. As we've looked at physics over the last couple hundred years, there's been, in some sense, a sequence of developments that you might think of as arrows. And these arrows are all pointing towards some central unifying theory. I like to think of the arrows as sort of being along the spokes of a, of a bicycle wheel. They're all kind of pointing toward the central hub, some central theory that would unite electricity and magnetism and the nuclear forces. And the math has at least allowed us on paper to write down theories which put all of those forces together. But the remarkable thing has been that when we try to take that math, that quantum mechanical encapsulation of the microworld, and we try to play the same game with the force of gravity, it doesn't work. The traditional methods that have been so powerful at uniting the non-gravitational forces completely fail when you try to apply them in exactly the same way to the force of gravity. So gravity really has been the key conundrum, the key problem that has driven some of the more remarkable ideas at the frontiers of physics. You know, a lot of people out there, you know, when, when we use the term string theory, you know, they're, they're, you know, the question is, well, what does that mean? You know, why, why are you describing this in terms of strings? You're right. It, it is a theory that has been around actually since the 1960s. So the individuals in the late 60s and the early 70s who were developing these ideas realized when they looked in the mathematics that the math was describing a vibrating filament. They could see it right in the equations that they were developing. So this naturally gave rise to the word string, string theory. And in its modern incarnation, the idea is that if you look inside any of the familiar particles that most of us have heard about, be it 
quarks, be it electrons, be it photons. In the conventional framework, we envision them as little tiny dots, little specks that don't have any internal machinery. That's the conventional description, conventional framework. The new idea of string theory is to suggest that if you could examine those particles with adequate resolution, really huge magnification, you would see that there is something else inside of them. And the something else would be a little vibrating filament, a little vibrating piece of string, if you will. And the, the wonderful idea supported by the equations is that just as a string on a violin or cello, whatever, any stringed instrument, when it vibrates in different patterns, it produces different musical notes. The idea in string theory is that if you looked at the little strings inside of these particles, they also would be vibrating in different patterns. Each different pattern corresponds to a different kind of particle. So an electron would be a string vibrating in one pattern, like an A sharp. And a quark would be a string vibrating in a different pattern, like a C. So in this way, it's kind of like the musical notes that these little filaments can play gives rise to the richness of the particles that make up reality. And these vibrating strings are made of, of energy? You know, it, well, it's a good question. What are they made of? I mean, when you think of a dot, your mind usually doesn't go to what is the dot made of. Somehow our intuition allows us to think of dots as fundamental. But when we think of an extended entity like a string, our mind goes to, well, cut it up into smaller pieces and tell me what the individual pieces are made of. It could be that strings themselves are, are truly fundamental that there's no notion of cutting them up to find something yet more fundamental. You know, one of the things that has fascinated me in some of your, your recent lectures is the idea that something fundamental may be about to, to really shift in our understanding of the universe. And it has something to do with, with another thing that I get asked about fairly often, and it's like, okay, I've got 25 words or less to describe. Quantum entanglement. <laughs> mm, yeah. Quantum entanglement is one of the most remarkable and um, stunning features of quantum mechanics. It's a feature of the world that we've known about since the early 1930s. And in fact, as with many other things in our understanding of the world, it was Albert Einstein who really emphasized this point. And he emphasized it because he thought it was so nutty that by making it clear that quantum mechanics had this weird feature that I'll describe in a moment, that quantum mechanics could not possibly be the real story of the universe. That was his point. So what did he find? He and two colleagues, Podolsky and Rosen, found that you could have two particles arbitrarily far apart. You could have one, say, in a box in New York and the other in a box in Los Angeles. And he noted that the quantum laws allowed you to set up these particles such that if you were to measure interact with the particle in New York, that interaction would instantaneously have an effect on the particle in Los Angeles and vice versa. You looked at the particle in Los Angeles, interacted with it in some way, and instantaneously you have an impact on the particle in New York. And he called this spooky. Spooky action at a distance. What you could do in one location instantaneously seems to have some kind of quantum effect at a distant location. And as I mentioned, he was putting this out there to basically show the quantum mechanicians that their theory was not all that they thought it was. It definitely had some uncomfortable properties that he felt should 
really motivate them to find a deeper understanding that would not have these weird properties. Because the, the problem is this information is traveling faster than the speed of light, like you said. Well, the key part of your question right there is you said information. Yes. And I wouldn't use that word because the math makes pretty clear that no information travels, say, from Los Angeles to New York or vice versa in the example that I gave. Instead, it's a far more subtle influence, a sort of quantum thread that gets tickled in Los Angeles, and it's that tickle that somehow instantaneously tickles the other particle in New York. But you'd never be able to send a message. There's no Morse code signal that you could send using this influence because of another weird feature of quantum mechanics is that all we're able to do is predict probabilities of outcomes in quantum mechanics. There's a degree of randomness in the result of any observation, and that randomness thwarts the possibility of sending information through these weird, spooky actions at a distance. Nevertheless, it's still really strange. Even if there's no information going from one place to another, there's still something of something that's going from one place to the other. And that's what makes this really hard for our intuitive understanding of the world to to embrace. And yet the data, the data shows that this is how the world actually works. We're up against so much mystery here, and it, it, it's so exciting to me. I, I think it was, you know, in one of your lectures you were saying that this idea, you know, even the idea of, of space-time, may turn out to have something to do with quantum entanglement. Yeah, that's a very recent discovery, and frankly, I think it's one of the most exciting things happening today in the uh, frontiers of research. You know, a dream of many researchers is that we would one day be able to go further than Einstein, and really be able to answer a question such as, what is space made of, right? We always look at material objects in the world and ask ourselves, you know, what's a piece of wood made of? What are the molecules made of? What are the atoms made of, right? So that's an urge that we always have to figure out the ingredients that make up something. Is space another entity for which that kind of question makes sense? And the recent results suggest that the answer to that may be yes, and it may be, that the threads stitching together the fabric of space, that's the metaphor we always use, but the threads in that metaphor may actually be these weird quantum linkages, the weird quantum entanglement. The threads of quantum entanglement may be what stitches together the fabric of space-time. What an amazing result that would be if this can be made completely precise. And there's a lot of work pointing toward this actually being how space is configured. Is, is this something that, you know, I can hear it, you know, in your voice. I, I, I mean, is this something that excites you that we, we actually may be on the cusp of, like you said, that the next thing past Einstein? Yeah, no, this is hugely exciting because it suggests that space and time themselves may be less fundamental than we previously thought. There may be a deeper level of reality where there may not even be a conception of space or a conception of time. And maybe that space and time emerge from that basic understanding, and they only emerge perhaps in certain configurations, in certain environments. How amazing would it be to realize there's a a realm of reality in which the very concepts in space and time simply don't apply? That different language, different concepts, different vocabularies necessary to describe that realm of reality. 
it, it's an amazing thing to kind of step back. You, you, we began the conversation talking about the fact that it's all about the math. You know, the, the math has taken us on some journeys, you know, suggesting to us that there are different dimensions in space, that maybe time doesn't work the way we perceive it. And and now we're looking at, you know, the, the next thing where the math is, like you said, kind of taking us by the lapels and tugging us and saying, hey, the whole idea of the nature of reality you have isn't right. Yeah. And, I mean, the, the, the math predicts reality so well. It's such a useful tool. Yeah. But now we're talking about losing or at least leaving behind the idea of space and time. Right, right. When we take quantum mechanics and apply it to things that we can measure in the laboratory, I mean, my favorite example is if we use quantum mechanics to describe the magnetic properties of electrons. We can do calculations on paper, and physicists have done this over decades, thousands of pages of calculations, to work out the magnetic property of an electron, and we can do it to 10 decimal places. And then we can measure the magnetic properties of an electron, and decimal by decimal, digit by digit, the observation agrees with the theoretical calculation to 10 decimal places down the line, one part in 10 billion. That assures us that the mathematical methods are telling us how reality actually works. And once you have that confidence, you're willing to follow the math further down the yellow brick road and see where it leads you. And when it leads you to someplace completely strange and bizarre, you don't simply take it at face value. You think about it, you struggle with it, but you take it seriously because it's the very same mathematics that has allowed you to understand reality with a precision that's unprecedented in human history. My intuition, like everybody else's, is that the world has three dimensions of space. But when the math suggests to me that there may be more, I'm willing to take it seriously because the math has not led me astray in the past. When the math tells me about quantum entanglement and then the observations of quantum entanglement establish that it's correct, confidence in its utility in describing the world grows, and then when quantum entanglement can be used to perhaps describe the very fibers of the fabric of space, I'm willing to take that seriously. It's a beautiful universe to, to start it, to even think about starting to perceive. You know, the idea that there, there's so much out there that we don't even yet understand really what the underlying nature of reality is. Yeah. I mean, it's all about ultimately telling a story that allows us to frame our observations of reality in a way that makes uh, real sense, that, that allows us to find the patterns. It's all about finding patterns, right? I mean, since early days, when, when our brethren were, were walking the Savannah, and the goal was to be able to survive, and how best to survive than to be able to predict what's going to happen an hour from now, or a day from now, or a week from now, or a month from now. And we have followed that very same tradition in deeply wanting to understand the patterns guiding the unfolding of reality. And amazingly, and maybe this won't always be the case, but amazingly we found that the language of mathematics seems to be ideally suited for encapsulating those patterns and predicting future patterns. Now having said that, I allow for the possibility that one day we're going to contact intelligent life out there in the universe and they're going to Say, hey, guys, show us what you were doing to figure out reality, how the universe works, and we'll bring out our fancy math textbooks and our physics textbooks that have all these equations, and they'll kind of look at us and roll their eyes and say, yeah, 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 we, we tried math. That worked for the first few hundred years, you know, to understand things, but it only takes you so far. 
And the real language for encapsulating reality is this. And they may present us with something that is completely beyond our imaginings today. And that might be the better way of analyzing and understanding reality. There's no evidence for what that would be. I can't even make an educated <laughs> guess at what they would show us that wouldn't be mathematics somehow in disguise. But I allow for the possibility that there may be a better language, a better pathway toward understanding reality. Brian Green. He's director of Columbia University Center for Theoretical Physics. And he's the public voice for the challenge to actually leave behind our three-dimensional perception of reality. Thanks for listening in on this episode of Orbital Path from PRX. We'd love for you to check out more episodes at orbital.prx.org. If you're still flummoxed by our 11-dimensional universe, I'd especially point you to our recent episode called Scary Math, recorded in the comfort of my backyard hot tub. And if you're looking for another podcast, check out one of our favorites, Reveal, from the Center for Investigative Reporting and PRX. Hosted by Al Letson, Reveal's team of reporters can spend months, sometimes years, digging to get to the truth and hold the powerful accountable. More at revealnews.org. Support for Orbital Path is provided by the Alfred P. Sloan Foundation, enhancing public understanding of science, technology, and economic performance. More at sloan.org. This episode of Orbital Path was produced by David Schulman. Our editor is Andrea Mustaine. Special thanks to John Barth and Genevieve Sponsler, back on three-dimensional planet PRX. Signing off for now, I'm Michelle Thaller, a little bit of dead stardust. Stardust.